<laughs> that was a great reenactment you just did, Jack. <laughs> I always do my best. Um, You're like one of those Civil War guys. You, I, you, you play it like it happened. Yes, I always try to play it like it happened. Authenticity is my is the name of the game. I I'm I am Mister. Uh, I'm not gonna say I'm Mister. You're Mister Authenticity 2017. <clears throat> yes, I'm actually gonna get a plaque that says that and put it on my uh, on my door. By uh, all means, sure. Well, anyway, everybody, welcome to the Wages of Cinema. I'm Jack, and I'm Andrew, and uh, it's nice to be back here. It's nice to be back in uh, our podcast. It feels like it's always a nice safe space. Yes. I, you know, it's, uh, hopefully you feel safe here, too. I don't know what did that you, means. Did you think I was going to disagree? <clears throat> <laughs> All right. Maybe you think it's a dangerous place. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's, not, the, uh, it's not the jungles of Vietnam, so I'm That's satisfied. Good. Yes, there, there are no landmines that we have to watch out for or anything like that. Never so get good. out of the boat. <clears throat> Never Absolutely get out of the boat. goddamn right. Yes, yes, unless you're going all the way. And hopefully we might go all the way, but not not in that sense. Metaphorically speaking. Yeah. Um, but there is something that uh, I'd like to talk about uh, right now. Um, so another, you know, we, we thought maybe uh, after all the deaths we had in 2016 that, you know, maybe we would get a little bit of a break. Well, well we knew where they weren't going to stop. No, I guess not. Uh <laughs> No, I guess it's it's maybe 2016 was just the warm up. Every every December 31st, I'm like, all right, this next year, no one's gonna die. <laughs> this will be the first year ever when nobody dies. Can there you imagine a year where nobody dies at all? And you like that episode it, of the Twilight Zone. Was there an episode of the Twilight Zone when that happened? No, there was an episode of the newer Twilight Zone where like death took a vacation and like oh. all the people who were horribly injured wouldn't die. Hmm. Oh, okay. But people were still being born. Yes, that's good. Well, unfortunately, somebody did die, and that person was John. It was John Hurt. <clears throat> uh, excuse me, I'm just clearing my throat a little bit. I don't want to be too flummy for uh, talking about John Hurt. Gentlemen, you have had four hours. You had better have results, Mr. Creedy. The Bailey area is quarantined. All significant witnesses have been detained. Good. Mr. Etheridge. A recording device was found wired into the central emergency broadcast system. The DCD was Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture. Add it to the blacklist. I never want to hear that music again. Yes, sir. We also doubled our random sweeps and are monitoring a lot of phone surveillance, indicating a high percentage of conversation concerned with the explosion. Mr. Daskin, what are we doing about that? We're calling it an emergency demolition. We have spin coverage on the network and throughout the interlink. Several experts have been lined up to testify against the Bailey's structural integrity. I want Prothero to speak tonight on the dangers of these old buildings and how we must avoid clinging to the edifice of a decadent past. He should conclude that the new Bailey will become the symbol of our time and the future that our conviction has rewarded us. Mr. Hayer. Our surveillance cameras captured several images of the terrorists, though the mask obviously makes retinal identification impossible. We also managed to get a picture of the girl that Creedy's men were uh, detaining. Who is she, Mr. Finch? Not sure yet, sir, but we're working on several leads. Anything else? We located the fireworks launch and found traces of the explosives used at both sites. Unfortunately, it appears that despite the heavy level of sophistication, these devices were homemade with over-the-counter chemicals, making them very difficult to trace. Whoever he is, Chancellor, he's very good. Spare us your professional annotations, Mr. Finch. They are irrelevant. Apologies, Chancellor. Gentlemen, this is a test. Moments such as these are matters of faith. To fail is to invite doubt into everything we believe, everything that we have fought for. Doubt will plunge this country back into chaos, and I will not let that happen. Gentlemen, I want this terrorist found, and I want him to understand what terror really means. England prevails. Um, the funny thing is, we just talked about him. Yeah. And that's a weird thing. We talked about him a few times on this show, um, John Hurt is one of those actors who, when you're watching movies, just keeps popping up. We talked about him in in a way, uh, not not directly, but he was in one of the movies we discussed in our live show. Yeah, he was the voice of uh, 
Who was which rabbit was he in Watership Down? Oh shoot, he wasn't Hazel. No, he wasn't was he Hazel. Other... No wait, I, I'll look this up. There were two I have... rabbits, Fiverr and Hazel. Hazel was John Hurt. Yes, you're right. Yes, yeah, because he was the main rabbit. Right. And he he did a lot of voice work, by the way. Uh, he was in the other Richard Adams adaptation directed by. Uh, uh, his, I don't remember his first name, but I remember I remember his last name because he has the same name as our friend uh, Rosen. Yeah, uh, something Rosen. Uh, he did this movie called The Play Dogs, right? Which is, it, it, it's Martin it's, Rosen. Martin Rosen, thank you. He, Martin Rosen's Play Dogs is neck and neck with uh, Grave of the Fireflies, is the saddest animated movie ever made. Yeah, <laughs> which He's, is a tall order. When you see the Plague Dogs, you will beg for the levity of Watership Down. Yeah, and, and <laughs> Watership Down is already a dark movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and oh, also he was the voice of Aragon in uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh. The Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Aragorn, he, yes. he was the kind of actor who always contributed to a movie. Like, even when a movie might be a train wreck or might be, you know, a, a disappointment. You know, and we talked about Heaven's Gate yeah. on the show. He he pops up in that. Yeah. He he kind he he's he literally stumbles through that movie, if you think about it. Like, because he... He appears in the first part of that movie, because uh, the opening of Heaven's Gate, for those who've seen it, takes place at Harvard. It's supposed to be setting up uh, Chris Christopherson and John Hurt are students in Harvard together. Um, <clears throat> John Hurt gives like this big speech, and, and you think seeing them together, oh, this is going to be their story. And John Hurt shows up for maybe three more scenes in the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> He's not a major player in that story. And you say he's, John Hurt stumbles through that film? It's because that character stumbles. Yeah, it. no, no. I'm not saying the actor kind of wandered into the frame and they're like, damn it, this is all we can use. It is difficult to understand from Heaven's Gate why John Hurt's character is there. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the, that character is memorable because he's played by John Hurt. Yeah, and, um, and again, we just talked about the Black Cauldron, which makes me almost wonder if... Uh, I remember years ago when I listened to Spill.com, they thought maybe they had a, the Spill curse. Uh, <laughs> they would talk about people, and then uh, then they'd find a week later they died. Hmm. Like, maybe we have the, the wages curse. No. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, John Hurt did a day's work on the Black Cauldron, and uh, his yeah. contribution did not go unnoticed by the wages of cinema. Yeah, like, he really was, he was one of the people that came out really well from that movie yeah. he he, he well, played that well he played that villain as well as he could it wasn't exactly a character with a lot of depth if it, if the horn king is a terrible character it's not because of john hurt's voice no no john hurt brit is did exactly what he's supposed to do he brought a lot of presence he brought uh danger and fear which, he know. also showed up in another film, which was on our list. A we, Man for All Seasons. Yes. I was about to say that. And that was one of his first roles. He was, yeah. uh, like, we always think of John Hurt as, he's one of those actors that we think has always looked old. Yeah. Like, even in Alien, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but in A Man for All Seasons, he's in his 20s. Um, in that, he... He's uh, Richard Rich. Which is... <laughs> that name, man. It was the name of an actual person, so they had to keep it the same. Oh, was it? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, because that, that, that is based on a true story. Yeah. <laughs> um, wasn't he the one who kind of betrays uh, the Paul the Schofield of, character? He's the kind of wormy, uh, yeah. scheming guy. Yeah, he starts out like trying to suck up to, I think, the, the character. Uh, to and then Sir he Thomas gets, Moore. Yeah, Tom, Sir Thomas Moore kind of uh, says, eh, go away. And then he sidles up to the villain. Yeah. I'm trying to remember exactly, but yeah, he he plays the character who uh, doesn't go in the path of trying to help out Thomas More. Man for All Seasons, a really great cast in that film. Yeah. Like when you, even though this is the beginning of his career, John Hurt uh, you know, makes, makes an impression in that film. And then you have Paul Schof Schofield, who's fantastic. And there's uh, Orson Welles appears at the beginning of that film. And then you have Bernard Shaw. That's right. Who, um, as Henry the, Henry the Eighth. Now there's something. Now he was in. Uh, now this isn't exactly a movie, and I I've been hearing about this series for so many years. My mom told me about this. Uh, Doctor Who. No, no. Well, that, that that was something else. No, my mom didn't watch Doctor Who. I Claudius. 
Yeah. He I was... I'm surprised I have not seen Clockwork. Yeah, that would seem like the kind of thing you would definitely check out. That's, uh, you know, a, a real show like that. A television and, miniseries yeah. about, based on the book. Yeah, and he played Caligula. Nice. Which is what makes me curious to check that, that out. That's, uh, considering that we have seen Caligula together. If we hadn't reviewed Caligula earlier, we should have done it for a Dr. Jack and Dr. Andrew. Mm. But... Uh, Unfortunately, yeah. we uh, we blew our load on that one. And oh, to... <laughs> considering the kind of movie that is, yeah, that's <laughs> wow. I didn't really. <laughs> I know it's a little dirty. I'm sorry. Uh, that was an unintentional pun. That's just where my mind went to. I'm sorry. Well, I I, I really I didn't expect that to come out that way. And it's just like, nope, there it is. <laughs> You anyway. heard it here first. Um, another a movie I want to point out before we get to some of his big ones. Um, he was in a movie that I really enjoyed, um, that which is called uh, Ten Rillington Place. Okay. And uh, this is a film from like the early seventies. Uh, Richard Fleischer directed it, and it's based on a real life case of this British serial killer named John Christie. Uh, he he's played by Richard Attenborough in the movie. And Richard Attenborough, usually picture, you know, the guy from Jurassic Park. You picture the, the guy with the beard. Or the and... guy from The Great Escape. Oh, okay, yeah. Who's he in The Great Escape again? He's the he's the big uh, the guy who's in charge of the whole thing. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, this is actually, I guess, from a little bit after that. So this is when he's not, he's not old John Hammond, uh, Richard Attenborough. He's no. still a little bit in that still an adult um he's not the director of gandhi Richard no 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 um and but basically it's about uh this guy who uh moves in with uh in in the late 40s turned around 50s and richard attenborough is so creepy in this movie because he lives in this flat uh and he he tries to have this nice demeanor to mask being a serial killer and he tries to act like uh he has a medical background and he lures women into his apartment and he ends up kind of getting uh, John Hurt and his uh, wife involved in his uh, dealings. I forget some of the details of uh, yeah. of what was going on with that. But uh, yeah, he, that, that he was excellent in that film. So if any of you want to check out uh, the kind of film that sometimes is called a sleeper, that movie that kind of goes a little bit under the radar, but is really worth checking out. Uh, Ten Rillington Place is a big one. Probably uh, John Hurt uh, up there with certainly one of the three or four greatest death scenes of all time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back with that top ten list at another time. But yeah, someday we'll John do Hurt, best death scenes. But yeah, I mean... Let me, let me talk a bit for, about Alien. Okay. You, uh, you know I have a beef with Ridley Scott. Yeah. I like Alien. It, I know, I does, know. We, we've without, talked about this. It is not without its flaws. <clears throat> and the, the biggest flaw for Alien for me is every character except for Ripley. Yeah. They're pretty obnoxious. They are pretty slight. I can't think of anybody else in that except for the black guy, <laughs> the captain, whoever John Hurt was, and the woman. And yeah. that's all I remember. <laughs> you oh, don't right. remember. There was also Ian Holm as the uh, as the thing, as the guy. Yeah, well, the the cast is Sigourney Weaver, Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, yeah, uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, Tom, I forgot about him. Tom Skerritt. Yeah, Harry Dean Stanton has a great death scene in that movie, too. Well, uh, not as dramatic as what happens to He John actually, Kirk. no, you know what's cool about Harry Dean Stanton has the typical horror movie death scene. Yeah. But it's executed so well that it's it's hard to really complain and it's like and it's funny because every time i watch it i think yeah this is basically both the prototype and i'm sure it was also just in that time frame when they were a lot of slasher movies it's 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 so derivative of what you expect from like a slasher death mm. yeah. but it's the typical slasher death but it's directed extremely well this is a little sidebar but did you uh, check out the trailer for Alien Covenant. Did I? The new, yeah. I the feel new, like I did. The new Ridley and Scott Alien. I don't Alien. seem to remember much about it. Well, yeah, it's it's a little, it it's basically from the look of the trailer, Ridley Scott. It's weird that he was really pressing to make 
a follow-up to Prometheus, so that it's a sequel to the prequel that's still a prequel to Alien. Don't get me started. <laughs> no, no, I won't get you started, but seeing the trailer for that, it looks like, oh, well, now we're going back to full-blown slasher territory again. Okay. But, uh, but back to John Hurt. But John Hurt basically is immortalized as the first chestburster victim. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if John Hurt deserves to be remembered for nothing else, it's for the fact that he had an alien come out of his chest the in great, the most graphic and dramatic way possible. And say what you will about Ridley Scott and stuff, but the way that he staged that scene, um, and also the way that the behind-the-scenes story, I don't know if you know that, uh, you know, it was in the script, so it's not like they didn't know at all. But Ridley Scott and John Hurt didn't tell them how they were going to do that scene. Mm. So the actor was just there, and they're like, okay, at some point, an alien's going to come out of his chest. But ever, how everything as far as... Like, I think the whole scene was improvised as far as the dialogue. So, you know, they're, they're just having People this meal. People about that scene. If it's not improvised, it feels very impro improvisational. Well, like, the the way that... The, the, there's another actress in the scene, Veronica Cartwright, right. I think her name her reaction is real like because when the alien pops out she gets sprayed with blood and you just hear her and she's like ah! yeah <laughs> and she's like oh god and that's that's not in the script that's just her on set being like oh there's blood on me <laughs> yeah like come on guys you got blood on me but, but even after that alien comes out you still see john hurts hands she's yeah like, oh that that's a great like, touch is too he still alive is this just, like, nerve stuff? So creepy. <laughs> yeah, every time I watch that scene, and I've seen Alien a, a many times, it still has this visceral impact. Like, that is probably one of the... Certainly one of the scene that gets closest to that... Uh, how really Scott said his big inspiration in that movie was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's, that feels the most Texas Chainsaw massacre scene if that makes it, sense it's the signature scene of the whole film mm -hmm. I, every every movie has one shot or one scene that explains that movie yeah. or, or stands for it exactly and you can't mistake it for anything else mm -hmm. that scene is the is the is the icon of the alien series yeah and they and it hasn't been done as well since. And um, and then of course it got immortalized again in uh, Spaceballs. <laughs> Did you? I, not, actually, I haven't seen Spaceballs. Uh, oh, I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna be like you've never seen Spaceballs, uh, but you should see it at some point. Uh, that was a big part wow. of my childhood. That film, and I so I saw that I saw the parody of Alien before I actually saw Alien. And that's why I didn't really get it, actually, as a kid, when, you know, the, the alien pops out of John Hurd's chest because he makes a cameo in Spaceballs. Oh, really? They recreate the scene. Huh. Like, and, uh, I mean, it's it's a little bit goofier. Like, the, the dialogue is not as improvised as an alien. There, Like, there's a guy who's, um, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better term, he's talking kind of jive. Because, like, John Hurd is kind of doing his flailing about, and somebody's like, get him some water! And the black guy's like, water my ass! Get this guy some Dunno Bisball! <laughs> As a kid, I found it funny. Um, but, the, yeah, the, but the alien, the, the gag is that the alien comes out of his chest again, it turns to John Hurt, and John Hurt's like, oh no, not again. <laughs> and then he dies. And then the alien does the Michigan J. Frog bit from that cartoon. Yeah. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my rock drive girl. Yeah. Um... And as a kid, I, I didn't even know what Alien was. I just thought, this is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, you seen The Elephant Man? Yes. Mm. I saw that in school. In high school, creative writing class, of all places, they showed that to us. Mm. I guess as a... Unrecognizable John Hurt. Well, yeah. I mean, that the, I, the, the makeup is kind of the star of that movie, even though he really brings it. Yeah, and you know he's opposite of Anthony Hopkins, and, and John Gilgood is in there, and it's easy to forget that's a David Lynch film. Yeah, it, it although doesn't... I think when you really look at it and see how everything is set up in the scene, you can really feel that it's a David Lynch film. The because... very opening, 
is a very David Lynch moment. I don't know if you remember, uh, right after the credits, before the movie really starts, there's this weird abstract, like all these weird figures on the screen that's like almost, I guess, supposed to symbolize maybe like when the elephant man is being born or something. Maybe. I, I, but, but the thing is, you're saying that happens, and because it's a David Lynch film, I believe you. <laughs> you I don't, don't remember, remember it that it. well. Okay. But yeah, it, it's... He is... You know, you, you can't not get emotional watching that performance. Yeah. You know, I am not an animal. I am a human being. Yeah. That one. That's a... That's kind of like the alien chestburster of that film. <laughs> it's the signature scene. It's of a that line film. that people know, even if they haven't seen the Alpha Man or even know what the film is. I yeah, it's like I heard that line in like that line was in like Rugrats cartoons. That line was in Police Squad, the television. <laughs> was it? Yeah. Oh, it's great. It's cut. It's watch Mystery Science Theater. 3000 enough you'll see they'll quote that you know maybe once per episode <laughs> but yeah i mean john hurt uh <clears throat> I, he was but he in that film it's he, he has to play john merrick the elephant man and he has to he has to seem he, he, he has to seem very vulnerable but he also has this real this sort of charm about him yeah it's a difficult I, it's, balancing act because you, it could very easily become either too schmaltzy or it could be, be or it could go the way of we don't really believe that he's this guy right if he's too vulnerable you can't see him as a really compelling character if he's too charming you don't you don't really feel sympathy for him yeah because you're like why is this guy even though he's kind of disfigured from birth why is he so marginalized yeah, um, and yeah, he pops up in a lot of movies that I've seen. I'm talking about movies that he pops up in where, you know, I, I mentioned Heaven's Gate. Uh, he was in Indiana Jones, The King of the Crystal Skull. Right. And, you know, the movie has some problems. <laughs> but he comes out okay. He, he, does have a, he does have a really goofy line in the movie near the end. Uh, I don't know if you remember the end, near the yeah. end of that movie. The spaceship is going away, and he said, where's it going? And John Hurt says, it's going to the space in between spaces. That is not his fault. <laughs> no, no, that was George Lucas's fault. I'm, I'm not, no, I'm not blaming him. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but... But uh, that's the point with John Hurt. I mean, any time he was in a movie, you might not enjoy the movie, but you would enjoy seeing him. Snowpiercer? Right. Well, we, that's a very that's a great movie. Yeah. Aside from it, but he he's a he is a memorable presence in that. Yeah. Uh, I, inter interestingly, his character is named Gilliam. Right. So a little bit nice homage there. Uh, I had just seen him. Uh, he pop, you know he'll always pop up in things. He was in this movie Jackie, which is currently up for a lot of Oscars. The, right. the Jackie Onassis biopic. Right. Uh, he plays like this priest who is kind of there throughout the movie he, because it's told non-linearly. He's a priest who's sort of hearing... He's a time-traveling priest. Yes. <laughs> I've come from the future to tell you, Jackie, that everything will be okay one day. <laughs> That's not terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, he, he has a really nice presence in that film because he's trying to console Jackie Onassis and... You know, he can't really say much because she's just in so much grief. Um, also, a cool thing about him, he, uh, you know, he, he's, uh, he could have died actually years ago because he actually had cancer in the 90s. Huh. And he beat it. Good. So, you know, we got more years of him than maybe we might have. Uh, I think he's probably one of the last actors that came out of that group of British actors for, like, uh, He's probably he's a little younger than these guys, but people like uh, Peter O'Toole and uh, Richard Burton, Richard Harris, yeah. these British actors who would just drink a lot, yeah. and you could tell. But and again, Bernard Shaw. Bernard Shaw. What's his name? George Bernard Shaw. No, not what's what's his name? The guy in Command for All Seasons. Oh, Paul Schofield. No. <laughs> Who's in Jaws? Oh, Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw. Bernard I, I, Shaw. I keep saying Bernard Shaw. 
Robert, wow, Bernard Shaw was in Jaws. That's no wonder Wait, he had such. I a... said Bernard Shaw before, and you didn't catch it at all. <laughs> no, I heard you. <laughs> no, but then you didn't say it's actually uh, George Shaw. I forgot that I forgot he was King Henry the Eighth. Yeah, there we go. Now I know. Yeah, now I remember his character. Yeah, he was. Yeah. This whole episode is going out in the trash. I know, I know. <laughs> All right, start again. <clears throat> but, uh, but yeah, so many great performances. Uh, and the cool thing, too, uh, I still need to see this. And weird timing, because this book is now... Uh, I don't know if you know this, this book has shot up to the bestseller lists. Uh, 1984. Oh, yeah. Um, there are certain current events that are making people feel like they need to check out this book. Or they've read it or not. A bit melodramatic, but <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, but then, he... but but he was, uh, but he was that he was Winston Smith in that film, 1984, which came out in 1984, right? Which is pretty perfect. And then he Just plays like 2001 came out in 2001, starring sure. Bernard Shaw. <laughs> I'm gonna throw this drink at you. Uh, but no, then. Uh, V for Vendetta. Have right. you seen that? Yeah, I've seen V for Vendetta. Yeah, and then he plays Big Brother in that film. Yeah. Or the Big Brother type character. Adam Sutler. You know, that is perfect casting. Yeah. Uh, also, the Hellboy movies, he popped up. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I remember that now, because he, he that 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 really stuck with me, that role he was he was playing. He was... It was kind of like a weird thing, because... Well, I, I don't want to go into spoilers, but, you know, he didn't come back for the second movie. Trevor Broom Brutenholm. Yeah, the guy who was, like, head of the that that secret uh, occult Yeah, he's the, he's the character in that type of movie who brings in the the character who sees everything that's going on. Right. Um, he's the Obi-Wan Kenobi of Hellboy. A little bit. Yes. A little, is he kind totally. of... Is he the mentor? Definitely. Okay, I'm not going to argue with you. Um, You're not going to argue with the guy who kept calling him Bernard Shaw? Uh, I, I let that go. I forgive you. <laughs> I haven't forgiven myself, Jack. Yeah. Uh, yeah just, just so many movies. I'll I'll, I'll read off a few more here before we, we go on to something else. Roger Corman's Frankenstein Unbound, the final film that Roger Corman directed. Who cares? Yeah, who cares about that? Uh, I mentioned uh, Elephant Man. If you ever watch History of the World Part 1, which one day you will he watch... Jesus. Oh, you did watch it. History of the World Part 2. It's Hitler on ice. Uh, a Viking funeral. Yeah. Jews in space, space, space. But yeah, he pops up as Jesus in that. Yeah. Which is such a great gag. It's perfect. Oh, that. he was. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, John Hurt, I raise my glass to you. You were a terrific actor and a decent human being. I hope so. Uh, okay, so something I also... Was there something you wanted to talk about no. before I get in movies? All right. I want to talk about the films of Bernard Shaw. <laughs> <laughs> well, he made so many uh, between all of his playwriting. Uh, from Russia with Love. <laughs> sure. George Shaw was really in that. You mean Robert Shaw? Yes. You screwed up again. Damn it. Why are there so many Shaws? <laughs> there are two. And he also there's wrote... George Bernard Shaw and there's Robert Shaw. Shaw. Uh, then the <laughs> wow, Clay Shaw was the best actor in Jaws. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, so, uh, speaking of uh, people we've talked about on the show before, Robert Shaw. Okay, I'm you got it. it. Good. It. Good. All right. You're well on the do with the old Spanish lady. See, that's how you remember. Okay. That's not. How does that help me remember? Because it's the song that Robert Shaw sings in Jaws. It's... You mean George Shaw? Bang, zoom! <laughs> All right. All right. I just saw a new M. Night Shyamalan film. Good for you. <laughs> oh, man, good for me. Oh, God. Did, well, did, you've seen... I think we... Did we talk about the trailer for Split? Yeah, we did a little bit uh, back in the day. Yeah, because you watched it, and I feel like, if my memory serves me... You thought it was full of crap. Well, the premise is one that no longer holds water in the real world. Even though there is dissociative identity disorder? Yeah, but that's not the same thing as multiple identities. Multiple identities have been debunked for for a dec for more than a decade. Okay. It simply does not happen. Hmm. And it simply doesn't happen. And there's nothing like what James McAvoy's character has in this where he has 23 personalities yes that does not <laughs> exist well 
right, here's why I'd say watch now. These. That doesn't mean that this is automatically a bad movie because I know in real life this doesn't happen. However, I can go with that in a film. Exactly. That was my That's attitude. Suspension of disbelief. Yes, that was my attitude watching this movie. I thought to myself, okay, I don't even know a lot about this. I have a suspicion that this is not how it is in the real world. But I can I can still get into this. Yeah, I mean, imagine I, if this was a thing. Yeah, I mean, I... I and, mean, that's, to, and I don't have a problem with that. I mean, to give a basis of comparison, uh, years back there was this uh, Jim Carrey comedy called Me, Myself, and Irene. Right. Where he has, like, a psychotic break and he has a split personality, which is basically Jim Carrey's Clint Eastwood. Right. And, you know, it was a stupid movie, but I had fun with it. Because, okay. all right, I can... For a stupid comedy, I will buy this premise. Here, what happens is, if it, 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 I'd say at least for the first half, you have the makings of a really good, or at least interesting kind of thriller. And by that I mean how it's directed, probably more than it's written. Because, talking about split personalities, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan of this film, he's really two separate people. He's the person who directed Split, and he's the person who wrote Split. Yeah. The person who directed Split is really showing his A-game here. Uh, the direction in Split is really fantastic in a lot of cases. Because he... You know, one of the problems sometimes with M. Night Shyamalan is he gets way too complicated. And, uh, like, if you try to explain Lady in the Water to somebody, it's oh, kind of difficult. We've, and we tried. We've tried to do Oh, we've tried, listeners. Um... The thing at its heart, Lady in the Water is not that complicated. It's just not written in a very simple way. No. Well, the thing with Split is at it's least overwritten. You can at least exp you can at least explain the premise of Split in a sentence. A man with multiple personalities kidnaps three young women. Yes. And locks them up in a, an underground thing. Yeah. And in a basement. But then there's this. But then there's the other M Night Shyamalan who wrote the script. And this M. Night Shyamalan eventually goes completely bananas. Mm. This movie split. If you guys, if anybody goes see this movie, holy shit. Oh. The, the thing that makes this movie so crazy is that actually for a while, again, I was able to suspend my disbelief. James McAvoy is fantastic in the film. Right. He is really committing to playing these characters. He doesn't ultimately play... He's not 23 people in the movie. It's really more focused on about, like, four or five of them. They could have trimmed it down. Yeah, probably. Uh, like, I don't don't say 21 personalities unless he's going to actually do 21 different characters. Yeah, it's it's almost the kind of thing where... Uh, you remember in Batman v Superman where... Uh, uh, the What was it? Batman or Wonder Woman that goes to the computer and sees... Uh, uh, Lex Luthor's whole file of Batman different... does that. Batman does Bruce that. Bruce Wayne. Yeah, Bruce Wayne goes to the computer and, and then sees the little different things for the different justices. Yeah, there's and... a there's a scene where one of the girls does that. He goes to the James McAvoy character. He has a computer and he has videos of himself like talking to like a webcam with all of his different personalities, so that we get a little bit of a sample of some of them, but. <laughs> If you're if you're the kind of person that's going to see this being like, oh boy, I can't wait to see all 23 personalities of James Magdeboy, you're not getting that. Wouldn't he realize though if he watched if he if he's accessing this computer to record himself, wouldn't he have access to the videos of himself as other personalities? Uh, well, that that would be. Oh, uh, why is this a video of me in a dress talking like the, a woman? The thing about this movie is that again. You leave some suspensions of disbelief. You try to give some leeway. But M. Night Shyamalan in this film ends up putting his head so far up his ass. Yeah. And then, uh, you know what? I'm going to give a spoiler warning. I don't care. I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler warning here, you guys. So This is like, this is a, a thriller that, or a horror film that has kind of, that's really damaged you like the boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, <laughs> It's not quite as dumb as the. It's close. Okay, it, so it's crazier starting, than the boy. All right, if you want to so jump ahead, we're starting the spoiler thing here. Jack, Jack's going to put like a time when it begins, and he's going to put a time when it ends in the description. Yeah, just jump ahead a couple minutes, and I'll, I'll give the exact where Jack in the description. puts the thing. Okay, so 
the one of the 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 sort of uh, sometimes in a script you have something that's building up to something. The yes. story in Split is that this character, the James McAvoy playing, who has all these different personalities, um, you know, there there are more dominant personalities than others. Like he plays, he's a nine year old boy. He's uh, a bitchy woman. He's uh, the guy who thinks he's in control. There's the guy who's more of the the fancy uh, gay art dealer who is the one who keeps visiting the psychiatrist. And there are a lot of scenes with the psychiatrist character, by the way, which are kind of well written. Is the psychiatrist played by M. Night Shyamalan? No, but he Aww. does make a cameo. <laughs> well, he okay. makes a cameo in a really ex inexplicable... It, the, actually, the, he, he's just like a guy who's working like a security camera system, but the dialogue in that scene... Uh, all right, well, I won't get into that. The point I'm getting that is that where this is all leading to is there's an emerging 24th personality, which is called The Beast. And what happens in this movie is that not only can he go between his different personalities, and sometimes and it'll kind of happen every, like, five, ten minutes, depending on his mood, he can change his body chemistry. Okay. Or do things like that. So, like, for example, one of his personalities has diabetes and takes insulin. But that doesn't damage any of his other personalities. Just when he has that one personality, Okay, you're straining my yes. suspension of disbelief, but it's not fatal yet. Yes, but then, in the last third of the movie is when this becomes uh, sheer insanity. To put it in the words of how this get made. Uh... He becomes this beast who ch who becomes like this indestructible like wolf man, or he doesn't grow hair, but he becomes like he almost looks like he grows. He's all built up. He's he's... All built up. He can't if he gets shot, he doesn't really get hurt, and he climbs walls and oh man, and it, it, it... oh yeah, this is ridiculous. Oh oh, you have no idea. Like the last third of this movie makes the happening look sane. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not say <laughs> No, I am saying that. that. This the last third of this movie is crazier than the happening. Wow. Yes. Oh, but it's it's never boring. I'll give it that. So, in a lot of <laughs> ways, this might be if technically speaking this might be a bad movie, but it's so much fun. Wow. Except now though, but here here's where the final twist happens. So we have all this thing happen where these girls are being terrorized by James McAvoy. Another big spoiler. It leads to some cannibalism. Good. Uh, and uh, this one... Now, the other thing, too, about him being putting his head up his ass, by the way, he he's making basically a really intense, fun thriller. But then it also has to become about child abuse. Uh... And it's way too long, which is not usually... Even when M. Night Shyamalan's been bad, I don't he's know if I've ever felt... Little, oh, he's never been too long. This is a little too long in some spots. Like, they give a lot of backstory to this one woman character. And, fine, give some backstory to her, but the way that they try to en end up connecting her to the James McAvoy character just comes off really hackneyed. And then comes the final twist, where it's like there's all these characters watching on the news about this you know, crazed guy with multiple personality disorder and the camera's panning past the faces and all of a sudden you see Bruce Willis as his character from Unbreakable. <laughs> we have entered into the M. Night Shyamalan cinematic universe. Wait a minute. This is actually a great idea. <laughs> you think so? I think so. <laughs> I don't think they so. Have... I feel... It felt like a cheat. This... They have, with one scene, they have just reframed the entire narrative of this story. See, I don't buy it. Watching this movie, it felt like M. Night Shyamalan wrote himself into a corner, and he just decided, oh, I see what Marvel's doing. I'm going to do this. You know? Just from So just from me telling you this, you think it's a great idea. Well, it's not a great idea, but it's one that actually would have made me like, oh, I, I would have appreciated that in the theater. See, watching that... Now, I I'm just... not saying this is some grand uh, idea that M. Night Shyamalan was like, all right, I got a plan. No. I think in his head, he, I think maybe he thought he was thematically com connecting it to Unbreakable in some way, because... Have you, you haven't seen Unbreakable. I have seen Unbreakable. 
Now, in that movie, you know, it, it, this character is going through, you know, he finds out he has this power of being indestructible. He meets Samuel Jackson, who ends up becoming, like, near the end, he's like the supervillain. Um, but that movie recognizes what kind of movie it is, what, what right. it's homaging. Split comes off, Split ends up seeming more like a Silence of the Lambs type of movie with, like, split personality disorder. With the more... Un Un Unbreakable was... I don't know. T I don't know if you'd call it a thriller. Yeah. It has some traces of a thriller, but it certainly doesn't have the tension of a thriller. Uh, uh, but it's... But it feels it, it works. It works really well as a drama. Yeah. The thing about Split is it works really well as a thriller. As a drama, it works sometimes, and other times it doesn't. Um, and even if like even if they didn't have that twist, I'd still prefer Unbreakable. But it's just I I don't know how to feel about the ending. I left feeling cheated. That's just how I'm saying. I felt maybe if you saw the movie, you would feel different. Well, it, it's an interesting idea, maybe on paper. The way that it's executed, like the way that the camera pulls back and then shows him, you know, uh, one of the things too that I thought about watching that is, yeah, at the time Unbreak Unbreakable was popular, it wasn't The Sixth Sense. No. No, like a lot of people seeing that would be like, what, what does that mean? What the, you know, it's different than like when you're watching a Marvel movie and, you know, you're watching The Hulk and you're having fun and all of a sudden, oh my God, there's, there's Tony Stark. That that actually oh, that's uh, that's actually makes sense because the movie just came out. Well, uh, you have a good point. Unbreakable is not the the touchstone of pop culture that the Marvel uh, movies are. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, I think it. You got the reference. No, I did. And not everybody will because not everybody was alive and watching just, movies. In I the just 90s. kind of questioned like. Is this going to lead to Unbreakable 2? Is the world really interested in Unbreakable 2 at this point? Well, there have been a lot of things made that no one really had any interest <laughs> in. Who was interested in a remake of Dead and Her? Yeah. Now, again, I will say Split, as far as the kind of the, the roster of M. Night Shyamalan bad movies, this is the best. Okay. I know it sounds like a weird thing, but in a strange way, I'm almost recommending this movie. If you really love M. Night Shyamalan's movies, you might actually have fun with this because it is well-directed. It's just that M. Night Shyamalan still has his head so far up his own ass. He hasn't, he hasn't recaptured that writing magic. No, he hasn't. Like, I think that he, he tries to come close to it, and he having James McAvoy here, and also the actress who's the main girl, she's this actress, Anna Taylor-Joy, who... Uh, really made a mark in last year uh the the witch uh she was in that oh you mean the vavitch the vavitch yes the good the vavitch whenever time i say it like that i feel like i need to give it that accent i can't say just say the vavitch i have to be like the vavitch uh, it's good yeah uh so yeah split but if you're let me let me just put it this way be prepared for a lot of what the fuck there is a lot of what the fuck in this movie uh from the whole dialogue scenes, like I sat there in the theater, like with this face, you can't, you, you won't be able to hear it, but I'm just going to give it to you, Andrew. Like Jack is frowning intensely with his mouth open like that. I had my mouth, I had my hand over my mouth a lot of times. So he did get a reaction out of me. I will give him that. Uh, this isn't like uh last airbender where I left really angry. Mm. Uh, so yeah, split. That was my that was my review. Sweet. Uh, has, have you seen anything lately? I saw a documentary. Okay. Called Sticky, a self love story. I have not heard it's of a, this. It's a documentary all about the history and cultural, uh, and cultural impact of masturbation. Okay. Oh. <laughs> wow. That I just did a double take. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in in I, what sense? Well, it's uh, it talked a lot about well, how has masturbation been looked at throughout history? What what about what about it has people so hung up nowadays? Why it uh, it, it relates to the story of back in the nineties during the Clinton administration, how uh, his Surgeon General, a woman named Jocelyn Elders, talked about 
sex, sex education and the idea that children should be taught about masturbation, and it led to them asking her for a resignation. Oh. And and it, and that uses uh, and it it's basically just a general overview of of the history of of masturbation. Yes. Like when you say overview, is it like going back centuries? It starts centuries ago, but it's, it f- focuses mostly on the twentieth century, huh. and you know it talks about the Kinsey report. And oh, okay. It talks a, a little bit about you know when you get into the nineteenth century about the invention of the vibrator. Oh, which now, we we talked about. Do they talk about uh, hysteria? They they talked about the disease of hysteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was in that film? film. I, know, I don't I know. think it was out by that time. Yeah, this but is but what that film was exploring. Right, and uh, so not it, just so not just male masturbation. Well, yeah. Masturbation for humans. Okay. And uh, and they talked about the interesting thing I learned about the vibrator is that when when appliances are being electrified, the vibrator was the fifth appliance to get electrified. After you know things like the washing machine and the uh, whoa. So so you're the saying sewing that machine so and... so you're saying that so there are all so there are these first few practical things and then somebody thought you know. I need to make a stick that I can make electric and put into my... Well, it's not just that. Like The vibrator as we know it is much different from the vibrator of back then. Oh, okay. it was con- It was conceived as sort of like a massage tool. Like, we yeah. buy a, an electric massager in uh, a store like Sharper Image, and that's how it was conceived. How people use it when they get it in their homes oh. is their business. That, it's like the... Uh... The bit from, uh, there's this one little bit in Annie Hall where Woody Allen's just going up to people on the street and asking questions because he's in like a frantic moment. And he's like, well, what, what, what do you do to, to, to arouse a woman in bed? And this old guy's like, we use a large vibrating egg. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like that. And actually the reason, and vibrators were widely advertised in catalogs and things like that. And it was only when a vibrator appeared in a pornographic film in the 30s that uh, magazines were like, nope, no more vibrators. We're done. Huh. And that's when the vibrator got the reputation we know of it today. And, you know, back and back in the day, it was like, oh, give yourself a scalp massage. Give yourself a back massage. Do whatever the hell you want with your vibrator. Yeah. And uh, it was actually a really interesting thing. Nothing too profound. Sometimes it gets a little melodramatic when they're talking about issues that are at stake when you neglect sexual education. Oh, uh, yeah, and yeah. Well that, well, that is a big issue. It is a big deal. It's just the way it's presented is kind of like, oh, if only we had known that... that and if only people spoke more openly, this man would still be alive. And No. Well, do they mention all of like the myths that used to be around masturbation the yeah. fact that like if you do it you'll go blind you, you'll grow hair on your palms or and, and like apparently that. that was something well not that <clears throat> specific thing but the sort of negative push against masturbation was back and came around back in the 1600s and people talked about oh this is no good and uh but it's but it's not just uh, it has a lot of interesting things in it and they talked to a lot of a lot of different guests. They talked to Jocelyn uh-huh. Elders, the former oh, yes. uh, Surgeon General. They talk with... Who uh, actually was the first Surgeon General to say, yeah, masturbate. Well, that, well that, not, not in that way, but she was somebody who didn't like look at sex education in that way that you have to be afraid of it. There's a lot more to Jocelyn she, Elders than... than than, uh, I know, than there, there's more to education, that. But that's the thing that... She's that kind of known fire. for it. Yeah. Uh, but it was an interesting little documentary that I would I'd watch it again. So it's just called Sticky. Sticky, a self love story. Oh, a self love story. Yeah, uh-huh. that's interesting. Yeah, I've never heard of that. It's uh, it's good. Relatively recent. Well, I w- I don't know how recent. Oh, I think it just came out last year. Really? Yeah. Wow. Then it definitely comes after Hysteria. Oh, oh it's, wait oh. a minute. They <clears throat> they used a clip from Hysteria in that in that documentary. Wow, I'm so, seeing a lot uh, of the people in this: Larry Janine Flynn, Garofalo. Janine Garofalo, <laughs> Nina Hartley. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, 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 there are a lot of doctors in it, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which which good. Yeah, have some doctors in there. Uh, yeah, Justin Elders. There are a few clergymen of different faiths in there, and they talk and they talk about uh, religious views on masturbation. Cool. Uh, but it's uh, but if you want to see something interesting, kind of slight, but not uh, but re- really entertaining, then Sticky's a pretty good documentary just to watch. 
If you find it on Netflix, give it a uh, give it a look. Mm, cool. Um, so just talk really briefly. Uh, I saw two thousand one Space Odyssey for the first time in a while. Oh, have good. we talked about that on the show? I think we have. Probably at some point. Uh, we if have. we haven't talked about two thousand one Space Odyssey on this show, then clearly we've been doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If if you go back in the archives, folks, let us know if we haven't talked about two thousand one. Uh, but I. This will now. This was now my fourth time seeing this on the big screen, good. Which I feel like is if you if you listening out there if you have the chance to see two thousand one in a theater, that makes for an experience. Which I'm not going to say it necessarily like oh my god the only way to see this is on the big screen that that uh, that's kind of hipsterish yeah. and it's a little bit least, but you there are little things that do make it worthwhile. The fact that. Kubrick packs a lot of details that you don't really notice until you see it in a large format theater. Um, like, there are a couple moments where characters on the ships are watching TV. Yeah. And you get to see what they're watching. Like, at one point, characters are watching this... Either it's like a karate fight or a sumo match or something. And that I just find kind of entertaining that... Huh. So, in a way, that I don't know if that could tie back a little bit to your whole opening Dawn of Man segment. It's... You know, when I, when I think about 2001, yeah. it's a great movie. Yeah. In certain respects, though, I feel like it's an ad for space travel. Uh, it dwells a lot on its spectacle, but in a very subtle, quiet way. Mm-hmm. I think about the special effects in 2001 A Space Odyssey. <coughs> I, this is going to be a kind of silly comparison because the films are decades apart. Okay. But think about 2001. Yeah. And its special effects compared to Star Wars. Well, well, that's barely a decade. Right, but uh, I mean, no, 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 no. I, I get the comparison exactly, and I know that I, I know it's, I definitely know what you're thinking about because Lucas watched 2001, and he thought, well, this is a great advancement, but yeah, the the way the difference really has to do with story. Yes, and ultimately that's why the comparison kind of falls apart because it's not. They're not trying to do the same things. One is about action and fantasy. One is about realism and and science fiction. Now, uh, and that's uh, and you know, so they're kind of it's kind of like apples and oranges. But when you think about how good everything looks in two thousand one, and how gradually it moves, and then you think about how good everything looks in Star Wars, and how fast everything moves. It's it, 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 you kind of have this feeling that you know there's been a progression. There's been a progression. I mean, there's a little bit. You could say it's sophisticated in different ways uh, because yeah. Star Wars he was aiming more for a space that uh, that was lived in that you could believe that these ships have been around for a while. Things are dirtier. Yeah. Two thousand one. Everything is cleaner. Everything is squeaky clean in two thousand. Everything is squeaky clean. Um, you know, and you have to remember that this movie came out at a time when uh, NASA was really trying to push forward their space program. This was before people had stepped on the moon. This is right, yeah, before people had stepped on the moon after they had been to space. And this is the film that got uh, NASA interested in Stanley Kubrick faking the moon landing. Uh, I don't know. Well, that's <laughs> that, that's a of bunch course of it's not true. Jack. I know it's not, but <laughs> the way you said that for a second, my my mind was trying to wrestle with. Uh, <laughs> with that uh <laughs> there actually is more watching the film again there is more story than uh than i remembered i mean yeah, yeah. there's not a lot of it uh because i also since i last saw the film i hadn't seen the film in like five years i read the book i read the book okay you did yeah oh, yeah, yeah. I, the thing is they're not too far apart the movie and the book it's just the book has more stuff yeah um it has more de- it, it explains a few more things about things that happen well think about 2001 the book i mean in in the book events the plot is at the forefront yeah i mean you you can't help but see the connections between certain things in 2001 the movie everything the story is buried underneath scenes yeah and there are sometimes scenes that don't seem related to each other there are hard cuts between different parts of the story. I yeah. think about the Dawn of Man section and that hard cut to space. Space, and then think about they go to the moon and there's that hard cut to Jupiter, to 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 the Discovery One. I mean, this the yeah yeah. Well, well, there's that cut. There, well, there's 
Yeah. There's that hard cut where they're looking at the monolith on the 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 crater. Yeah. And yeah, you know, the one thing, by the way, that I, even though I read the book, it still puzzles me that one little moment where they're all posing for the photo and the loud sound just comes on. Yeah. That that shocks them. It's the only time that the monolith does something like that where it really attacks people. Well, it's. And it's also kind of a weird thing because how does sound get from the monolith to the people They're in, space. in the vacuum of space? Yeah, they would have to be hearing it in their suits, wouldn't they? Yeah. How would they all be hearing it at the same time? Well, it's a futuristic piece of alien technology. I think we can give it some leeway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, but, but you wonder what... like The story is divided roughly into four sections and you kind of wonder what is the connection between all these things. When you think about it and see all the details, you can get... This idea of what the arc of this story is, but but what's, then, great, well, what's great about it is that every time you watch it, there's still that element of mystery by the end. Yeah, uh, you know what? What does the what does that baby mean? Is it? Are we watching reincarnation happening? Have you we ever seen, seen 2010? The year we make. I have not time? yet. I've seen it. Do they explain things? Oh yeah, I'm. Th they explain things up the wazoo. Th there's a part <laughs> of me that's that's why I'm a little bit afraid to watch it. I want to keep a little bit of that mystery. Trust for me, myself. You're not missing anything by missing 2010. Oh, okay. If Is it a bad movie? It's not bad. It's like an average sci-fi film eh. of the time. So, uh, okay. Roy Scheider, isn't it? Mm. Not Bernard Shaw. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's a callback for you. Uh, it was also fun seeing. I saw it with a friend who hadn't uh, seen the movie before. Oh, cool. At all, and uh, and he just left and he the theater. He's like. Wow, yeah. uh, he he was just blown away. And... <laughs> we, haven't done, we haven't done that in a while. It, that's one of those things where it's like you watch the end of two thousand one, and that's the moment that either solidifies that film for you as a classic, or the film loses you. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a polarizing moment because either you're with what they do in that Jupiter sequence, or you're not. Because because I... that is. 20 minutes, like, man, Kubrick's boldness, you know, it, it, he was a real pioneer because you have, uh, yeah, at the time that he made 2001, you had filmmakers who were pushing the envelope. He, you know, for up until that Jupiter sequence, you can watch 2001 and yeah, you could say, all right, a few moments move a little bit slowly, you're watching things, it's deliberately paced, etc. But it's still a traditional film for the most part. It's telling things visually, you can understand the story. The last 20 minutes are an experimental film. Mm. You're just watching colors yeah. and shapes and, and different things. Like you're watching what Kubrick did in a Petri dish that was shot with like a extreme telephoto lens or something. Yeah. It, it's, it's extraordinary. And yeah. yet I, I can get if somebody watches that and is just like, I, I don't know. That's how you know if you're different. You watch hmm. two. You watch that scene from two thousand one, and then you want you don't understand what happened, but you want to see it again. Yeah, um, I, just to get a little off track. Uh, sure. They parodied that scene in the cartoon Freakazoid. Oh, did they? And Freakazoid like goes through the, the internet and is all he's all like shaking and he sees all the colors and everything, and then he ends up in like that room. Yeah. And there's David Bowman. Across wearing this red spacesuit, and he says, "Do you know where the bathroom is?" <laughs> and Freakazoid's like, "I don't know." And he's like, "Shoot!" <laughs> and he just walks away. <laughs> and that's the great thing about two thousand one too, as well. It's just another one of those things, like the Elephant Man. I, I'm not an animal. It's one of those things that's parodied and referenced over and over and over again to the point where you don't even realize you're seeing a 2001 reference or parody i can't think of the number of cartoons that have parodied 2001 a space odyssey and it was just like completely accepted <laughs> there are cartoons for children that parody 2001 oh yeah no one's afraid of making a reference no one will get because it's just something that is etched into American popular culture. Yeah, even just you know, you could throw it in anywhere. Like uh, one of the um, with that there was this cart the cartoon the critic, um, and sometimes they would have all their version of the couch gag would be like 
in the opening credits, Jay Sherman would look at the screen and you'd see like a quick gag. Like, you know, the camera comes too in, too close on Julie Andrews doing uh, the opening of Sound of Music and it knocks her down the hill. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the, uh, in, in one of the gags in the opening of the critic, you see the monkey like hitting like he's using a bone to knock the monolith and he yeah. gets a coke. Ah. <laughs> but I mean, think of all, all the scenes that are so iconic. Throwing the bone in the air. Yeah, space travel with the Blue Danube, the the monolith, the the HAL nine thousand computer, and how he looks and his monotone voice, and also how Kubrick shoots that because he is, uh, you know, it's the, the entire performance on screen. It's that voice of the actor. Uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name. It's like Douglas something. I think maybe Douglas MacArthur. Rain. No, Douglas Rain. Or Douglas. Something. Fairbanks. No. <laughs> Bernard Shaw. Bernard Shaw, there we go. <laughs> uh, that's going to become a running gag. Um, <laughs> and you know, that trip through the, through the yeah, monolith. But, but no, but like, but it's just that eye. And then occasionally he'll cut to a wide shot to show like the whole ship. And it's like, that's the villain. Yeah. It's so great. Uh, yeah, and you just accept and it. And it's never like they, they zoom in on Hal and it's never like, dun dun dun. Yeah, what's kind of cool, the more times I watch it, I actually, find, like, I was in the theater, there are good, it was actually funnier than I remembered it. Really? Or I had more laughs, maybe it was kind of uncomfortable laughter, just because, I guess, you know, everybody kind of knows, most of the people seeing that movie that I was seeing it with had seen it before, and they're just kind of maybe laughing uncomfortable at some of the things that Hal says. Yeah. Like, when Dave Bowman finally comes back from being outside the ship, just what do you think you're doing, Dave? Yeah. I think you should take a stress pill. Calm down and think things over. And it's just Yeah. That's funny. He is Hal is literally pleading for his life. Yeah. And his tone of voice has not changed. Won't you stop? Stop, Dave. Stop. Yeah. It, and it is kind of funny. I think after you've seen it for a while, I, I think that's films like get that point where you're just like, "Oh yeah, this scene." <laughs> yeah yeah there there are movies that where that happens yeah um thus spoke zarathustra that theme that song that that was which is a piece of music that existed before okay. and now it belongs forever it belongs to 2001, to 2001. The space Odyssey. yeah i love when that happens with with movies like uh uh i mean um what's it called misarillu misarillu uh, yeah the, the, from the, from pulp fiction yeah, you, you, you. That is now the that's now the theme for Pulp, pulp Fiction. Right. Uh, you and know. Django, the song, is now the theme song for Django Unchained. Instead. No, of... I think it's still the theme song for Django. <laughs> I tried. No, no, no. I, 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 fair point. But yeah, I, I, that, that, that's fine. It's, it's. <laughs> we're gonna call our movie the same thing, and we're gonna use the same. Theme and I song. think what's cool about it is sometimes movies do that, and it's a little disturbing. Like. Uh, you can't really think of uh, Stuck in the Middle with You without thinking of Reservoir Dogs. No. Or uh, Singing in the Rain, you could still think of Singing in the Rain, the movie. But, but you it also, also makes... think about A Clockwork Orange. You do. Another Kubrick film. Yeah, he has such a great power to do that. He's ruined a lot of songs. He <laughs> ruined The Bird for me. Did you ever see Full Metal Jacket? Oh, I have, but I don't remember The Bird. Well, no, well, he didn't exactly ruin it, but now every time I hear The Bird... I think of this, there's this one shot in Full Metal Jacket where it's panning across all this war destruction that's going on, all these tanks firing off, and you hear... Like, that's another one of those just brilliant moves on his part to just do that. Yeah. Uh, a bold vision. So, 2001. So, if you haven't heard of him, Stanley Kubrick, really good filmmaker. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, he's he's praised by a few guys. Um. <laughs> he gets the wages of cinema seal of approval, or brand in this case. Uh, I was I was trying to think of the sound to make, but I couldn't think of one. Um, so if you've seen two thousand one, which hopefully you have, or Split, or anything else we've talked about, any of the John Hurt movies, send us an email: thewagesofcinema at gmail dot com. If you've seen movies, you've probably seen one with John Hurt. Yeah, you've probably even just stumbled across one. You like on TV changing. Cha- I mean, Harry Potter, folks. There you go. Yeah. Um, so uh, when we come back, uh, we will have a new segment for you. Good.
So listen to that.